I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 7. We're going through the book of Revelation, and we're going to go through the entire chapter of 7 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen. This is Revelation 7. It takes place after the breaking of the first six seals of this kind of scroll of destiny that we read about in chapter 6 of Revelation. After this, John writes, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servant of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm not sure what you imagine, if you do imagine at all, what it's like to prepare for a sermon. Usually early in the week, you sit down with the text, you just begin reading it, and uh, praying through it, through its themes, asking God for revelation and insight. And man, this week was a grind. By Tuesday, I felt like I had nothing. And I was kind of going in and out of study. There was not a lot in the text that, at least at a personal level, really jumped out at me. For some people, they might find a text like this really interesting. For me, I just, it just wasn't flowing. So some weeks are like that. Some weeks you sit down and you're like, wow, you get momentum right out of the gate. And you're like, I'm super excited. And other weeks, it's just a grappling with the text. And then not just to understand it, but then to figure out what does God want to say to this people through this text? 
And that chasm can seem really, really wide. Thankfully, by Thursday and Friday, I felt like God had kind of brought me through a number of breakthroughs, and I arrived this morning super pumped to share, because I think this is an amazing text, and it's much more applicable to you and I than I think first or even fifth, tenth pass would lead many of us to believe. So let me just take a moment to pray, join me, and then we'll move through the text and then talk about how it relates to us today. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it never returns void. And even the process that I have gone through this week, and I know many people do in their own lives, where they just, there just seems to be a wall or a ceiling, and the prayers feel stuck, or the uh, efforts feel stuck. There doesn't seem to be a lot of fruit coming through. And yet, God, if we stay in that space, and if we meditate, and we wrestle with you, um, and we grapple with your word and chew on it, uh, it does lead to a harvest. And I pray that harvest that has started in my own life would continue in and through this church, God, to make us more faithful, give us a bigger vision for who, who, who you are, secure us in an amazing hope, open our eyes to see your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm just going to move through certain parts of the text that I think are really, really important. The first is the first three verses where John says, after this, after all these six seals had been broken and these judgments of God were kind of meted out on the earth, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Um, if you remember last week, chapter six ends with a really important question which is with the breaking of the sixth seal, who is able to stand? That's people are fleeing God's judgment. And what they say at the end of chapter six is who's able to stand? And I think what's important is to read Revelation 7 as a response to that question. That Revelation 6 has been building to these great judgment, which God is going to pour out against sin and against the earth. And in light of these judgments, who's going to be able to stand? And then in Revelation 7, we're given a picture. Now, what's interesting and challenging, if you thought Revelation was complex before, let me introduce you to another idea. Revelation is probably not written in event sequence. So it's probably not a wise idea to assume chapter um, Seven, you know, whatever, whatever the next chapter is, it's happening sequentially as the next event. I think we have some clues that we should be reading chapter 7 as a bit of a flashback. We have these seals being broken, starting with the four horsemen, and then in chapter 7, or who's able to stand? And chapter 7 says this. But chapter 7 starts by saying, before these four angels... Are, re are released and are given authority to harm the earth. Um, you know, God says, wait, we, we gotta wait, we gotta wait for um, the servants of God to be sealed. And <clears throat> the four angels that are referenced here in Revelation 7, almost every commentator says, those are likely the four angels that are um, kind of connected to the four horsemen, which are connected back in the Old Testament to four angels or four entities who serve as those who go out to the four corners of the earth. So this language of four, I think, is meant to pull us back into saying, we've seen the judgment so far, who's able to stand? Flashback. Right back at the start, God did something. 
and he held back judgment until what we see in chapter 7 happened. So I think the best way to read 7, and in a way that will make a lot of sense as Revelation unfolds, is that this is kind of like a flashback. We're getting to a point in the movie, and they pause the chronology and show you something that happened even before maybe the first scene, and you're like, oh, that's a twist. That's kind of neat. We're seeing how God protects his people so that they're able to stand. Verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. This is a really famous Bible verse because it has all kinds of interpretations. And one of the big questions when you study Revelation is located on this verse. And that question is, who are these 144,000? Who are these people? What does this mean? And there are lots of theories. I mean, if you, if even just a basic Google search will have you going on tangents you can't even believe. One of the more famous ones is uh, the theory offered by the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is this represents those who are, I don't think it'd be right to say fully saved, but only those who have a heavenly hope. So when we're restored to heaven and earth, there will be kind of tiers of Christians. Some will be able to inhabit the earth, but some will have access to the heavenlies. And that is these 144,000 who in a sense earned a different tier of eternal reward because of their faithfulness in spreading Jehovah's Witness doctrine. So they see this number as a definitive amount of those who are kind of like super saved. Futurists who are kind of in that camp of like there's going to be a seven-year tribulation that starts with a rapture, there's going to be an antichrist and all these signs and judgments all that happens in Revelation, or most of it's going to happen in a kind of a condensed seven-year period. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. They believe that the 144,000 refers to some kind of a grouping of likely ethnic Jews who become Christians and during the time of tribulation serve God in a really powerful way on earth now that the church has been raptured out of uh, earthly existence. And so these 144,000 from these tribes in Israel who testify to Jesus and his mission now kind of kick into high gear. It's a fairly popular reading, or at least um, well, more well-known reading. But I want to suggest, and I want to argue for a reading of the text that rejects both of those because I think it offers a more comprehensive and more exegetically sound interpretation and exegetical is a big word that basically means instead of bringing to the text all our presumptions and saying, oh, this is what it must mean, to suspend those as best you can, we all have biases, and to really look at not just this text, but the whole book and say, how is this asking to be read? Let's make sure we start there. I think the 144,000, and I want to give you a few reasons for why I believe this symbolically represents all of God's people throughout all of history. It's not a specific group of God's people. It's all of God's people. Here's some of the evidence for that. Number one, numbers are often symbolic in Revelation. We've already encountered where John talks about the seven spirits of God. Even though we know there's one spirit, there's a Holy Spirit. But earlier in Revelation, John talks about the seven spirits of God going out to the earth. And yet that number seven, we understand from a Jewish framework, means perfection. Six days of creation, God rested on the seventh. Fullness, completeness, perfection. 
we, this is confusing for us because we use numbers to drill down into precision, right? Number one question I got this week from my kids, how many pieces of my candy did you eat, <laughs> right? I can't say a great multitude. They want to know exact amounts because they want the punishment to fit the crime. So we use in our culture numbers to arrive at precision. So it's easy for us to find numbers in the Bible and they say, oh, it's obviously referring to exact things. But in an ancient context, it was actually a pretty sophisticated way of teaching where you would use numbers and the repetition of numbers to point at real things, but to do it in a symbolic way. So seven, again, occurs throughout the Bible as this repetition of God's shalom, God's ideal, perfection. But you also have other numbers, like 666, which doesn't show up in Revelation first. It shows up in 1 Kings, where in looking at the history of Solomon's reign, we read, the weight of gold which Solomon received each year was 666 talents of gold, Besides what came in from the tradesmen, traffic of the merchants, all the other kings in Arabia, and the governors of the region. Now, are we to understand that every year, year over year over year over year, Solomon received exactly 666 talents of gold? It's a lot of money, by the way. No. What is 1 Kings trying to teach us? What are the Jewish scriptures trying to teach us? that the number 666, given the context of where this arrives at in Kings, is a number that symbolizes Solomon's fall. That he's crested and now he's beginning to worship other gods. He's beginning to put himself first. He's beginning to forsake God. He's beginning to abuse his power. He's beginning to turn away from worship of Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, 666 refers to a serious downfall. That's going to be something to keep in mind when you get to later parts of Revelation because that number is going to come up again. So numbers are symbolic. And when you get a number like 144,000 and it's connected to the tribes of Judah, I think there's good reason to believe this is a number that's meant to symbolically represent all of God's people. You can break down the math pretty easily. 144 is 12 times 12. 12 features prominently in the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, the container of God's people. 12 uh, features prominently in the New Testament, the 12 apostles of Jesus that are meant to mirror and be the kind of the new Israel um, correlated to those tribes. 12 times 12 is 144, and 1,000 is used a few times in Scripture just to denote a hugely long period of time or an age Again, we're going to hear about the number 1,000 come up later in Revelation. Is it a literal 1,000 years? Some would say yes, but some would say it's a number that symbolizes an age, an extended period of time. When you put these together, you have the Old Testament people of God under the Old Covenant, 12 tribes of Israel, times and combined by the New Testament people of God, symbolized by the apostles and their influence, over a long stretch of time, and you get 144,000. So I would make the argument that symbolically we're actually hearing a number that represents all people across history who have followed God and yielded to God and, and surrendered to his redemptive purposes. 
The other reason why I don't think it's wise to drill down into taking these numbers uh, and, and some of this language of tribes hyper-literally is because if you study the actual language and stuff of the tribes, the tribes have been altered. These aren't actually like the tribes of Israel. These are not Jacob's sons. Dan is left out. Manasseh is included. They're also not the tribes that inherited the land of Canaan because Dan is left out, but Levi, the priestly class, is included. Joseph is listed instead of his son Ephraim. Judah, the tribe of the Messiah, appears first rather than Reuben, the firstborn. So there's this intentional playing with the tribes, which I think is a way to say these are not going to be ethnic Jews who become Christians at a certain point in the future. I don't think that's a, a strong reading. I think, again, we're supposed to infer that with the coming of the Messiah, Judah takes prominence because Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and now the people of God are altered in some significant way. And we know that happened from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Salvation belongs to the Jews, but then gets extended to everybody, including Gentiles. Third evidence, the 144,000 are sealed. And that is just forthrightly what the New Testament says applies to all Christians. Not a special group of Christians are sealed, or there's like a secondary sealing, or a particularly um, novel uh, kind of sealing. It just refers to them as sealed. But listen to these passages in the New Testament that are written letters to local churches in the first century, regular Christians like you and me. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now it is God who makes both, both us as leaders and you stand firm in Christ. God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. Not me, not just pastors or whatever you think of as like a, a different grade, not, not people who are like fully devoted vocationally, like everybody, every Christian. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to everyday Christians like you and I, with whom you were all sealed. In Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, you as a Gentile, even though you weren't part of the ethnic people of God, Israel, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, when you put your faith in Christ, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So the New Testament makes it really clear. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, he seals us as a deposit of the full inheritance to come in a new heavens and new earth. And that sealing isn't just for some Christians, it's for every Christian. Number four, the listing of the tribes, a few um, commentators note that in Numbers chapter 1, 18, 26, the tribes are listed, but the context is a military census to, get, to keep track of how many young men from each tribe are able to go to war as God's people move into the promised land. And again, I think the symbolism there is what we're seeing in this 144,000 is symbolic of God's salvation army. And again, who's part of God's salvation army? Is that only some Christians? Is it only going to be some Christians in the future? Or was it only some Christians in the past? Like when Paul writes in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, is he saying like you and you and you, because you guys are part of God's army, but the rest of you were just kind of like not. It's like, no, we're all part of God's salvation army. We don't fight like the world does. We don't fight by, we don't spread the faith by bringing violence or hatred or opposition 
of a violent physical opposition to bear against our enemies, we advance the kingdom by fighting through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, overcoming evil with good. But that's the job of every Christian, not just some. And lastly, I would argue the great multitude that's referenced in verses 9 following, where John heard this number and then he turns and sees a great multitude, those are actually the same group. It's, it's talking about the same thing from different perspectives. And again, if we are just jumping into chapter 7, we, we kind of say, I don't really see how you can get there. But we've already seen that pattern happen early in Revelation. In chapter 5, John hears the angel proclaim, the Lion of Judah is able to open the scroll. Then John turns and he sees a lamb slaughtered but the lamb and the lion are the same person. It's Jesus. John hears about a lion. He turns and he sees a lamb. John hears a number, 144,000. Then I turned and saw a great multitude. So I think the text is showing us this pattern of John is hearing something and then turning and seeing it. And they're both the same thing, but the number is meant to symbolize fullness, completeness, all of God's people throughout history. And John says, what that looked like from my perspective was like this huge multitude, people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. It was amazing. And in 14, we're also told in verse 14 that these are people, John's, you know, the angel says, who are these people? And uh, John's like, well, you know, he kind of passes the buck back to the angel. Like, well, far be it, you're the angel. You, 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 you can tell me. And it says, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, if you understand the Great Tribulation to be a small amount of time in the future, then obviously you're just going to kind of fall into the interpretation, understandably, of, well, this refers to people who are coming out of that Great Tribulation. The problem, though, is the verb um, coming out is in the present tense in the Greek, meaning you can't read it as these are those who did come out like before, but nor can you read it these are those who will come out of the great tribulation in the future. It's a present tense verb, literally those who are presently coming out of the great tribulation. Remember when John is receiving this, somewhere around 90 AD, maybe a generation, generation and a half after Jesus' resurrection, John's saying, what am I seeing? And the angel says, those who are coming out of the great tribulation. And I think or I certainly believe and I'm convinced by an understanding that would say what this group represents is everybody who is coming out of the great tribulation that started when Jesus became human and started with Herod saying, I'm going to bring great tribulation to this child. I'm going to hunt down every kid. I'm going to kill him and spreads misery across um, that part of the world and continues all the way until Jesus does return in glory. I think the best way to read the Great Tribulation is that it refers to wherever the kingdom of God is breaking in against the kingdom of darkness. And that, and that great, great Tribulation is happening all the time. We might not feel it right now here in Nelson. There's not a Great Tribulation. Nigerian Christians right now are absolutely feeling a Great Tribulation. 
Chinese Christians right now are absolutely feeling a great tribulation. And at any given point throughout history, Christians have been coming out of the great tribulation as they lay down their lives for Jesus in the midst of sometimes brutal persecution. So I think the way to read Revelation 7 is this vision given to John to comfort him to pass along to Christians who are going through serious persecution, who are going to in the near future. And this vision says, yes, the judgment of God is coming against the earth. But you know what? God has kept his people secure. And they're not going to be lost. Not one is going to be lost. When all is said and done, every single person who is yielded to Jesus is going to be secure. And it's a really hope-filled answer because you can imagine if you were ever in a situation where it really did feel like the world was collapsing around you and you had all these powerful forces targeting you specifically because you give allegiance to Jesus, because of your Christian faith. You can imagine how the doubt would start to seep in. Like, is this really worth it? Do I, do I continue on in perseverance? Maybe I can like work out a deal where I'm kind of like, sort of Christian or only Christian over here. And this vision is given to John to say, no, you keep going. You stay being faithful. They're they're in white robes. They're waving palm branches. That's a symbol of victory to a first century person. You're on the road of victory. Don't give up. Stay faithful. Those who have been saved and washed are going to be redeemed by Jesus. And that's a reason for huge hope, not just for John and Christians then, not just for Christians in the third century, 16th century, but Christians right here, right now. Okay, here are some lessons that we can tie all of this back into our lives as followers of Jesus today. Number one, don't miss the obvious. Life is a great tribulation. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, life is a great tribulation. And I think if nothing else, part of what this text does implicitly tell us is don't expect heaven this side of eternity. Life's a great tribulation. Jesus said that. He braced his disciples in John 16. He said, I've told you these things so that you can have peace. Oh, I want to have peace, Jesus. That's awesome. And he says, okay, next thing he says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But the word that he uses there is phlipsis, which is the word tribulation. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. I want you to, I'm telling you these things so you can have peace. You're going to have tribulation in this world. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The world can throw its worst at you. You will be left standing in the end. So life is a great tribulation. This is important to remember because many Christians follow God because of the promise of God's going to protect me. God's going to make my life easy. God's going to make my life amazing. I'm always going to be on top. It's going to be a victorious life. And then when tribulation comes, they think God hasn't held up his end of the bargain. So they're like, well, wait a second. My life's hard. God must suck or must be something wrong with me. And it's like, no, when you are following Jesus, not all the time, but you should expect to regularly move into points of tension because of your faith. Number two, in Christ we are eternally secure, but not necessarily safe. This kind of dovetails with one. Life is a great tribulation. And if you think that being a Christian will mean you're always safe, 
physically safe from any disease or illnesses, psychologically safe from any mental illness, spiritually safe from any attacks, relationally safe from any heartbreak and, and destruction and, and divorce and all the uh, estrangement from a child. There's, not, there's nothing that guarantees you'll be insulated from any of those tragedies in this life. Because in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And know that you are secure. That no matter what happens in this life as a follower of Jesus, even if you are killed, that doesn't threaten the trajectory of your next 10 billion years. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, Paul's writing to the Roman church and he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present or the future, um, any powers, neither height nor depth, nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, you are secure so that nothing in life or death, I mean, you just play through any categories you want. He's like, yep, none of those things can rip you from God's eternal provision and from eternal security. That's an amazing promise. And I think to kind of, again, connect these two together, life is a great tribulation, and in Christ we're eternally secure, but not necessarily always safe, is that we see God's people with the white robes and the palm branches, but that happens after death, right? Like there's so many, that's the prosperity gospel, right? Like we can have victory, full victory now. We can wear the white robes and the palm branches, and we can have victory in every area of our life now. And it's like, you're not going to. And you shouldn't expect that. That will come later. Victory comes later. Full victory comes later. God will certainly give us victory in certain areas of our life. But full victory, full freedom, that happens on the other side of heaven. Number three, I think Revelation challenges me to think about how the church on earth should strive to be like the church in heaven. We should work backwards from this vision. People of every nation, tribe, tongue, every people. The church in heaven is multinational, it's multicultural, it's multi-ethnic. They're worshiping together, they're united. They are centered on bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And I think that's a great vision for the church. Lots of churches have struggled with how to do that well, especially in locations where there are really divergent um, views of the best way. This group of Christians says, well, culturally, we think we should worship this way, and another group says this way. And unfortunately, sometimes it's just kind of resulted in, well, this ethnic group of Christians will start this church, and this ethnic group will start this church. But the vision of God is that the church on earth participates in advance of what the church is going to participate uh, like in heaven. And that means we should be looking for opportunities to include a diversity of Christians where we can. I mean, I know the Kootenays traditionally has been, not been a very ethnically or culturally, maybe in some ways, diverse place, but it's becoming more so, and that's an exciting opportunity. And, and don't miss this here, that Revelation 7 underscores why missions is critical. This is why we support people like Colleen Nanachuk and Calvin and Nicole Opio to go to the ends of the earth and to make disciples because they are part of the process. You and I are called to be missionaries here, local missionaries. This is where God has planted us. But God puts it on the heart of some people to cross ethnic, geographic uh, boundaries and say, I want to help these people grow into a faithful expression of loving and worshiping Jesus that honors their cultural heritage, but also allows them to fully participate in redemption in Christ. So that's why we as a church support missionaries, not because it's just a good thing to do, but it comes out of this vision of Revelation 7, 
that we want to stand with brothers and sisters from Kenya, whose only exposure to any religious ideas growing up was a very strict and in some ways militant Islamic faith, but through the efforts and the relational uh, trust building of Calvin and Nicole, come to hear the gospel, come to hear about Jesus, come to hear about a God who loves them, who came to seek and save them, and they turn their hearts over to Jesus. So there's Argentinians in heaven singing worship to God in their native tongue. And lastly, Revelation 7 is, going, is the first time that I think one of the um, first time that this theme will get repeated in Revelation. But if you are in Christ, your best days are ahead of you. If you're in Christ, your best days are ahead of you. This vision ends with God's promise that God's going to wipe every tear from your eye. God's going to remove sources of distress, grief, pain, wounding. We kind of get God heals in this life, but often in a way that's proximal. It's not like capital H healing, right? It's kind of like lowercase h healing. But one day there's going to be a full healing. We're not going to have a category for it. That's why you're just going to spend so much time um, spilling over in praise and worship to God. Your best days are ahead of you. And that's important to remember, especially when you find yourself walking through a great tribulation in your own life. See, this is not the end of the story. And the end of the story isn't vague. The end of the story becomes crystal clear as revelation unfolds. You have a powerful living hope the best days lie ahead of you if you are in Christ, if you are surrendered to Jesus. So do you live with that hope? Are you genuinely surrendered to Jesus? Are you sealed? Not because you've um, proven to God how much of a worthy Christian you are or a sincere person, and so God has said, hey, you're, you're getting the upgrade to being sealed like the Jehovah's Witnesses might teach but are you sealed because you realize I can't save myself, I don't want to save myself, I want to be a part of God's mission in the world to bring hope and healing and love and redemption to the ends of the earth and to teach people how to walk and follow after Jesus. The Bible says when we do that, we become sealed. It's not something we earn, it's a gift. Have you surrendered to Jesus and trust him and have entrusted yourself to him? If you have then know that whatever tribulation you might walk through in this life is only going to make the inevitable victory sweeter. So may we celebrate and sing that salvation belongs to our God. And then live in a way so that praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength is ascribed to God because of our witness to his goodness and grace. Let's pray. God, may this church continue to grow and mature as individuals and couples and families and as an extended network of your body. May we continue to grow and mature into this vision. Help us to live in such a way that the choir of heaven 10,000 years from now has more people. It's a little louder because of the witness that we bring to bear in our relationships and in this community now. We pray and ask for your blessing on us as a church, not so that life goes easy for us, 
but that you would bless us so that we can move confidently into the spheres of influence that you've given us to move and to lead and to influence through. In Jesus' name, amen.